0: hey everyone welcome to the pursue god podcast i'm pastor brian joined in the studio today by pastor ross and pastor john bellis and guys today we're in week number two of our series called the pursuit these are 12 lessons on the essentials of christianity last time we talked about three truths about every pursuit of god so we talked about the fact that god wants to be found by us which is great news but before we go on in the series We thought it's important for us to cover today's topic, which is going to be packed with information, John, because today we're talking about why the Bible, why the Bible is reliable. We're going to give just three reasons for the reliability of the Bible. That's only because we only have so much time. There are many more reasons. But before we even jump into it, why does this topic matter to you?
1: Well, because everything else we're going to cover during this series, we're going to point to Scripture for our compass, right, for our, our source of truth. And so if we can't trust the Bible, then I feel like we're lost. I know when I'm dealing with people that are very early on in their search of God and their pursuit of God, or maybe they're coming out of a, a different religious experience, and so they're not sure if they can trust the Bible, I always start there. Because any conversations I'm going to have with them about who Jesus is, about who they are, sin nature, or even more day-to-day practical things, like how do I treat my wife, how do I manage my money, I'm going to look to God's Word and all of that. that that's going to be my guide. So mm-hmm. if I can't trust it, it's kind of futile.
0: Yeah, so you know, I think for some people this lesson— in the pursuit is maybe the most important lesson to them, because there there are some in, you know, inquiring minds want to know, I don't know if that's dating me to say that, but inquiring minds want to know. So some people are listening saying, this is exactly what I hear, what I want to hear. I want to know why I should keep going through the pursuit. And I would imagine that there are some people who who don't really, this is one that they might skip over because they're they're like, no, i'm I'm okay with the Bible. i'll 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 take God at His word. They're more interested in some of the other topics. Guys, where would you stand on that? You know, Ross, you're a, you're a smart, you're an intelligent guy. Have you ever wrestled with, in your pursuit of God, have you ever wrestled with the reliability
2: of the Bible? Yeah, absolutely. Again, I agree with John. It's so foundational. I might initially accept it, you know, without necessarily thinking through the evidence and so forth. But at some point in time, every person's going to come up against an issue where, an, an issue of like, what is right in my life? Or what's going to challenge how I live or think about things, and that's where the the test of the authority and the reliability, can I really trust what the Bible says, and am I really bound by what the Bible says? And so ultimately it's something that, in my experience, yeah, you know, I have wrestled with those questions. Can I really trust it? What about, you know, the thi- the co- uh, there's been lots and lots of critics who have made counterclaims against the Bible, and um, you know you whether it's in your own personal uh, trying to figure out what is real in life or whether you're in a conversation with somebody who doesn't necessarily accept that, then, then this is great stuff that gives a foundation of confidence and credibility. So what would a person out there who
0: doesn't believe in the Bible, I'm going to just throw this, before we get into the evidence, this might be a good question to ask, is what, what would a person, what authority does a person have if they don't, accept the authority of the Bible. I mean, the three of us are sitting here. We accept the authority of the Bible in our lives. We trust it, and we'll, we'll give reasons why today. We trust it. We live according to it, which means that if the Bible says something that we don't like, then we're going to submit to the Bible instead of ourselves. So I guess maybe the question, John, you, you, I think you can probably answer this one. The person who doesn't believe in the authority of the Bible, what authority do they have in their life then?
1: Well, I think primarily culture would show it's the authority of me it, it's what I think is best it's what I want to do on the throne of my life it's it's relative you know I mm-hmm. and I may decide one thing on Tuesday and then on Thursday I may be faced with a similar situation and have a different response because I get to decide what is right mm-hmm.
0: yeah and I think that that is you know the, there's a place in the book of Judges in the Old Testament that says everyone did what was right in their own eyes and that was actually a bad thing in our culture. That's kind of the flag we wave. We we wave is I want to do what's right in my own eyes. Don't you can't tell me what to do. You're not the boss of me. You're not the king of me. And I think I mean I just think that kind of mentality breaks a culture down. It breaks a family down, and it breaks individuals down. So to me, that's why this matters. This matters because I think there's something there's something um, comforting you know, in my marriage, I will say there's something comforting to my wife that she knows that I'm submitted to an authority that's greater than me, that's above me, that I'm not just submitting to my own authority and asking her to submit to my authority. She, she can look at God's word just like I look at God's word, and she can call me out on something in my life based, you know, she can appeal to a higher authority. I guess in the in in our in our country that would be what that would be the constitution right we're on in on paper at least we're supposed mm-hmm. to be submitted to something higher than all of us that's why we have the supreme court that's why we have the justice system that's why we we have our legislature le- legislators because we're all trying to live according to some common standard we're all trying to say could we all as a society admit that this thing can trump our own personal opinions right and in, in, in faith, that's what God's Word is. That's, that's what we're saying today, is God's Word trumps everything. And that's why in the rest of this series, we're going to be appealing to God's Word all throughout. You're going to have a lot of Scripture as we talk about what sin is and who Jesus is and, and how we can be saved and how we should live our lives, all these really important topics. Um, we're, we're appealing to God's Word, and so therefore we need to know that God's Word is trustworthy and true and reliable. And so we have three, three proofs today for the truth of God's Word. And let me just give you, for those taking notes at home, we're going to talk about the historical evidence of the Bible. We're going to talk about the textual evidence of the Bible. And then we're going to finish with the personal evidence of the Bible. So guys, let's start with historical evidence. Ancient manuscripts and archaeological digs have stacked up in favor of the Bible. All right. So the Bible was written thousands of years ago, long before printing presses, long before modern technology. Manuscript fragments of the biblical text have endured wars and weather throughout the ages. And scrap- the scraps that remain represent just a fraction of the originals the question is, are those remnants enough to provide a reliable testimony for modern-day readers? So we're going to talk first about something called manuscript evidence. Guys, what is—and man- this, this isn't just about the Bible, right? This is about archaeological digs. This is about just, you know, any kind of text out there at all, Homer— you know, the Odyssey, the Iliad, all this stuff that we we read growing up in school. There's something called manuscript evidence. Can somebody explain exactly what that is and then how the Bible stacks up in terms of manuscript evidence?
2: Yeah, well, originally, as a written work, you know, that before the printing press was invented in the 15th century, then every manuscript, every written work, if it was going to be disseminated, had to be written by hand, had to be copied by hand. And so this is where the, the number of manuscripts come from. They're basically copies of the original or copies of copies of the original. Mm-hmm. And so every ancient document, um, we don't have anything that, that Homer, who wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey, we don't have anything that he wrote in his own hand. We have copies of copies of him. And there aren't very many of them. So we have, well, we have a pretty good idea that this is what Homer actually wrote in the first place. So with every ancient document of any kind, then if we don't have the original, which was written on, on perishable materials like parchment and so forth, then, then we have to rely on the reliability of the copies that have come down to us. And are there enough to be able to piece together um Uh, accurate picture of what was originally produced. Okay, so let's talk about
0: the quantity. Let's first start with that. So we have some examples in history. Aristotle, his writings. Today we have 49 copies of Aristotle's writings. Now that, you know, when you think on face value, these are more than 2,000 years old, that's pretty, I think that's pretty impressive that we would have 49 copies. Again, nothing in the original manuscript, but 49 manuscript copies which means they're handwritten there was no xerox machine back then right so 49 copies of aristotle will give him will give him okay good job he's actually got the silver medal for today because homer the, or the bronze because homer gets the silver the iliad does better than aristotle's writings we have 643 copies in existence of the iliad which again when you think about how ancient that document is that's pretty impressive. I don't know, Ross. If you have one of those copies in your library at home, <laughs> Pro- probably not. No. Yeah, these are. All, these would all be in museums, or who knows where. N- the New Testament. Okay, so that gives you some context. Aristotle and then Homer. The new test. New Testament wins. It's not even close. We have almost fifty-seven hundred Greek copies of the New Testament. I mean, think about that: fifty-seven hundred. Compared to 643 for the Iliad and 49 for Aristotle's writings. We have 5,700 in, that's just in Greek. And if you include the ones, the manuscripts that we have in other languages, we have over 19,000 copies in other languages. Guys, I don't know what, what John, for you, I know this kind of stuff really gets you going. I know you're passionate about the reliability of God's word. I mean, how, would you, how do you respond to these numbers?
1: Well, that's just super encouraging to me as a believer. It, it's it's what I would call substantial evidence, right? I, I try to avoid using the word proof when I'm having these mm-hmm. conversations with people because even God says without faith, it's impossible to please him. There, There's an element that we have to step out in faith, but he never calls us to a blind faith. He He gives us mountains of evidence for the Bible's reliability. So these numbers bring me much encouragement as a believer. And then also... You know one of the things that that early you know church leaders did when they were canonizing scripture was to look at the length of time between the original and the earliest manuscripts. and that that time period is shorter mm-hmm. for many New Testament manuscripts than these other ancient works of literature that we're mm-hmm. talking about.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah, now remember, this is just, okay, so that's just the quantity. And like you said, John, the length of time. but i I know a skeptic out there might say, Okay, but how do we know that those manuscript copies are faithful to the originals, right? Because remember, Ross, you said, remember, there's originals out there. We don't have any originals mm-hmm. of anyone's right. writings, right? Correct. We don't have it any, anything in Paul's hand, in Paul's actual, you know, we don't have his signature on any of this, right? So the question, and it's a legitimate question, how do we how do we know that those manuscript copies, copies of copies, are faithful to the originals? How do we know that... That you know the early Christians didn't just um, promote fake truth, right? Fake news, and just start writing up stuff and and everybody's everybody's kind of like the telephone game, I guess you could say.
2: Right. Every time it gets copied, it gets um, it gets corrupted. Right. That's right. The, that's the argument some will make.
0: Yeah, intentionally yeah. or otherwise. You know, right. some people might say, "Oh, you did it on purpose," and others might say, "No, it was it was a it was an error." But it get, it just kind of get gets compounded through the generations as it gets mm-hmm. copied.
2: Yeah, there's two there's two things to consider with respect to that. One is if you understand the the scrupulous methodology of the copyists and how um, how really rigorous that procedure of copying was. That's one one thing that helps give us some confidence in that people were not sloppy about it. It was. If they if they found a, a, a simple one-letter error, they scraped off the, the, the parchment and started over again, and then and then really really powerful um, for me powerful evidence was after World War II when they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, because uh, in the in the Dead Sea Scrolls they discovered copies of manuscripts of uh, these these applied to the Old Testament, not the New Testament, but because they, they were originally written just before the time of Jesus. Or in that framework of Jesus' life, but they found copies of Old Testament manuscripts that dated back a thousand years before any copies that were currently uh, in anybody's possession. So for example, the Book of Isaiah, the earliest scroll of anybody uh, possessed of the Book of Isaiah um, was dated from around 900-something A.D. Okay, so so, now suddenly in the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's a copy of Isaiah that dates from about a 1,000 years before that. Mm. So that's a great test, is put them side by side and see how much corruption of the text has occurred over a 1,000 years. Multiple copying, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you put those two things side by side, and I've actually seen them side by side. Not the original, but a photocopy of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And um, you put them side by side with today's version and you see, you know, it's, it is virtually perfectly um, preserved. And so that's, I'm going, wow, for a th- over a thousand-year gap, when the evidence wasn't there, you could surmise anything you want to, but now the evidence is there, you realize, oh, the process really was faithful, and the result really is this incredible uh, conformity of older and newer, so that gives you huge confidence that what we have has been preserved accurately over the years
0: and i've read that that at that time when those texts were found i think all the skeptics were excited mm-hmm. because they and i remember yeah. growing up i used to feel this way as a young christian i used to think oh man i hope i hope i hope archaeology doesn't discover something that debunks the bible because i knew even as a young christian how important the bible was to our faith right if we don't if we can't trust the Bible, then our, fa- our faith is done. Our faith is cooked. Our biblical Christianity is cooked. I, I think you could probably have some other form of Christianity, which I think some people do have, right. but it's not based on the Bible, and that's not what I'm interested in. I'm interested in biblical Christianity. So I remember as a young person being afraid that that would happen. I remember thinking about going into ministry and saying, I'm just being honest with you guys here today, yeah. thinking to myself as a young man, um, I don't know if I want to go into ministry... If if there's a chance with with you know science and technology and everything, if there's a chance that that God's word is debunked, because then I'm then I would have put placed my bet on the wrong horse, and I'd have to go. I should have just stuck with math, right? Right. The other stuff I'm good at, right? But that to me, this is such a powerful discovery in our lifetime that that the skeptics then ended up. Walking away with their tail between their legs because it did the opposite
2: than yeah. from what they were expecting, and, and the fact is that Brian, that's happened over and over again, because the more archaeological evidence that gets unearthed, what has happened, the track record is the more and more it supports the record of the Bible. So this is this supports the manuscript evidence, but archaeology and history supports the actual record as well. So for example, recently, um, my wife and I were able to visit the British Museum, and they have in the British Museum some ancient monuments from Biblical times and Biblical um, empires, like the Assyrian Empire, And, and then the monument that some Assyrian, these are the kings that are mentioned in the Bible. So there's a correspondence between history, as demonstrated by archaeology. The Assyrian king has a monument there where he conquers all these other nations, and in there are listed listed the king of, of Israel and so that's the same guy who's found in the Bible. Hmm. he's also found on a, on, a, on a rock carved out you know 800 years BC and so every time uh, a new archaeological evidence is unearthed it supports the Bible. That's the track record that the Bible has historically and archaeologically. Archeolo- so that's the first
0: piece of evidence for today. Is we're, again, we're calling it historical evidence, so we include in that archaeology manuscript evidence. We're, we're saying that that's historical evidence. Let's talk about the second evidence that we have, and we call this textual. We're going to talk about the text itself, right? Because we get clues from the text itself that I think are very compelling about the evidence that this must have come from God and not from man. The Bible contains 66 books written by 40 authors over the course of 1500, years. And yet it tells one unified story. That, this is really amazing when I we're, John, you and I are reading with your campus, we're reading through the, the entire Bible right now, this year, and, and it really is amazing to—I <laughs> don't know if you've noticed this, John, but we'll be in—you know, there's a couple, couple passage, couple chapters from the Old Testament, and then something from Psalms or Proverbs, and then something from the New Testament. I can't tell you how many times—I'm like, did they plan this out? How many times you're reading something in the Old Testament chapters, and then you read something in Psalms or in the New Testament, and it just feels like you're still reading the same book. It's been crazy for me to experience that, and that's what we call textual evidence. The Bible is the most impressive writing project in the history of the world. It really is. And let's, let's kind of go through some of this. Some of the authors um, in the Bible, I'm going to give you their name, guys, and you give us a quick little explanation. Moses. Who, would, who is Moses? Bi- give, give us his biography.
1: So he was the adopted son of the Egyptian Pharaoh. He was called by God to lead his people out of Egypt in slavery. And uh, yeah, you, we're going to see in this list that God uses all different types of people mm-hmm. in his word.
0: Yeah, so here, here Moses is, is this Jewish slave raised by Pharaoh. And, and he write, he's credited with, with the first five books, the Pentateuch of the Old Testament. And then fast forward to, to John right? He wrote the last four books of the Bible. So the first five books, Moses, the last four books, John.
2: Russ, what's John's bio? Yeah, John's just a fisherman. He's a pretty uneducated guy, just grew up in a family business, um, pulling in fish from the Sea of Galilee, and there's a gap of like 2,000 years there. Uh, so incredible, different parts of the ancient world that these two individuals grew up in, and completely different social circumstances.
0: Yeah, so in between those, those two authors, we've got books and letters written by shepherds and kings and prophets. There's a tax collector in there. There's a doctor. Luke was a doctor, and so much more. And, and so to think of all of this, and, and then yet there's this guy, Paul, and he's the most prolific author in the New Testament. Paul was this guy who was a religious Pharisee. He zealously persecuted the Jesus followers before he himself joined them. You can read, if you don't know the story of Paul, you can read about his conversion experience in Acts chapter nine in the New Testament. And, and if you, you just consider all these, all these men taken together, having written these, most of these authors had never met each other. Many of them were clueless about the other books and the letters that would eventually be included. In their in the Bible. Their writings span different cultures and languages over the course of 15 centuries. That's a long, long time. And yet, given all of that, the Bible tells one story, one consistent story between all those cultures and languages and backgrounds. There's one story from beginning to end. And what, how would you describe, what's the story of the Bible in a nutshell?
2: Yeah, it's the story of Jesus and really how God sent um, a Savior into the world to, to um, reconcile humanity to himself. All that's wrapped up in the person of Jesus. Everything that went before him, everything that came about his life, and then the things that happened as a result, that's, that's the bigger story. And one of the proofs of this is prophecy. So let's talk for a second, John, about
0: some prophecy here, right? The, the, the whole Bible is about Jesus, which means, you know, we meet Jesus in the flesh in matthew mark luke john the first four books of the new testament those are called the gospels but jesus is all over the place if you consider prophecy he's all over the place in the old testament okay so let's let's take a look at a a few examples of this let's talk about um, jesus's lineage right what do we know about the lineage of jesus
1: yeah so we see all the way back in genesis the very first book of the bible Forty-nine, verse ten: The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from his descendants, until the coming of the one to whom it belongs, the one whom all nations will honor. It, and we could go back even farther than that to Genesis chapter three, when we see Jesus come on the scene in really the first prophecy about the one that would be the offspring of the woman, mm-hmm. who would crush the head of the serpent. then mm-hmm. throughout, throughout to the very end of the book, you know. So, like yeah. you said. From the first pages of the bible to the last pages of the bible it really is all about jesus
0: yeah but that genesis 49 passage is i've always thought that was so interesting let's camp on that for a second because this is the blessing that what israel right is giving he's giving this blessing to his 12 sons and go back i encourage everybody to go read genesis 49 and it's really interesting to see he's he's going through his sons one by one speaking a blessing over each of them and John, what you just read was the blessing that he spoke over Judah. And essentially, he's he's saying, when we go back and look at that, he's saying Judah is the one through whom Jesus would come. Judah is the one through whom the Messiah would come. Of the 12 tribes, Judah is the chosen one. Which is really interesting because Judah wasn't a. There was nothing special. Some people could say, "Well, of course it's going to be Jude. Judah. Must have been the all star." But he wasn't the oldest. He
1: right? wasn't. I mean, the, they right. He wasn't the oldest. He <laughs> wasn't the oldest.
0: Number one. He wasn't the bat. He wasn't the most godly. Yeah, he messed
2: up pretty significantly. Right, yeah. in
0: there, Yeah. He. So you'd think it would be Joseph or one of Joseph's sons that would get would get that. No, but jo- Joseph was. Joseph was really the was the good guy of the twelve tribes. Right. So it's just this, I think he was, what, the fourth born, maybe? I, he, it was just this random this random guy. There's, in my mind, there's no way, there's no way that Moses is going to know, right? If, if he's trying to predict it, if we're going to say, well, no, that's just re, you know, redactive history, there's no way. So to me, that's such a powerful statement that that blessing over Judah, read that again from forty nine, Genesis 49. Now that we have some context for that, read it again.
1: The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from his descendants, until the coming of the one to whom it belongs, the one whom all nations will honor.
0: And the one is Jesus, and so then when we open up the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, we can trace now the lineage of Jesus. John, what does that say?
1: Yeah, it tells us that this is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham, Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers, and then it goes on, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah and continues mm-hmm. with the lineage there.
0: Yeah. So there's, there's the prophecy that we see about the lineage of Jesus. What about the prophecy of his birthplace? This is really interesting. It was prophesied that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Everybody probably knows that if you know the, the Christmas songs, that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. And that's exactly what happened. We're going to look at those passages here in a second. But here's the crazy part, is his mother, Mary, didn't even live there. So how is the, how is the prophecy about the birthplace of Jesus going to, going to be fulfilled when, when Mary doesn't even live in Bethlehem? And let's talk about some of the scripture that prophesied, that, that speaks to this prophecy. Micah chapter 5, verse 2.
1: Yeah, so Micah 5.2, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, are only a small village among all the people of Judah, yet a ruler of Israel, whose origins are in the distant past, will come from you on my behalf.
0: What a, what a prophecy from Micah, okay? Years, you know, generations before Jesus is born. And then Luke chapter 2, verses 1 and 4 kind of tells us the other end of that prophecy, the fulfillment of it.
1: And that is, at that time, the Roman Emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire, and because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home.
0: Yeah, that's crazy.
1: Yeah, a, that's so comforting to me when I look at what I feel like is some of the turmoil in, in our mm-hmm. current culture and even with our, with our government and our leaders mm-hmm. that Hear God use something that I'm sure at the time Joseph was like, "Really, I got to drag all the way to Bethlehem now." And yeah. yet God used that to fulfill His plan and His and these prophecies.
0: Yeah, and I, I would bet I would be willing to bet that Joseph had no idea. He didn't. He didn't have Micah five two uh, at the top of his head. I'm sure he wasn't really aware. He probably was just like, "What gives?" I mean, he knew at this point that Mary that this was a ch- the child of from God, but I don't think he put two and two together and recognized what was going on, that he was part of fulfilling this incredible prophecy.
2: Yeah, and the thing about these prophecies, there's no way that anybody could game this, and there's no way anybody could say, well, I'm going to set up the conditions to make this happen. It was completely... The only person who could do that, of course, is God, moving the moving the pieces of, human, of humanity on the chessboard, but there's no human way that... Anybody could say, okay, here's these ten prophecies. I'm going to make sure that, you know, they happen in Jesus' life. So I'll prop him up.
0: Yeah, and they're specific. You know, you think about Nostradamus, and people say that all the time. If you've ever read any of his prophecies, it's so cryptic. You could read whatever you want to read into it to make him look like a genius prophet. I mean, go back and read Micah 5-2 for yourself. It says Bethlehem, and Luke 2, it's Bethlehem. Bethlehem wasn't, this wasn't a big... It says it right there in Micah. This wasn't a big city. This wasn't like, well, it's going to be either New York or L.A. or Chicago. No, it was like a little town, just like we sing about in the Christmas carols. It was a little town, pretty insignificant, and yet this prophecy was fulfilled in the life of Jesus. And one more, because to me this might be the most impressive of all. Prophets wrote with shocking accuracy about the torture and death of Jesus hundreds of years before it happened, just like it was predicted. So, again, if you're taking notes at home, write these two chapters down. And these are just two examples. There are so many more, but there's two chapters. Psalm 22, which was written, what, about 800 years before the death of Jesus? About a 1,000. About a 1,000. And Isaiah 53. And these are two passages, again, in the Old Testament, written hundreds of years before what happened to Jesus. And most of us probably know the story of the crucifixion of Jesus. So bear that in mind, the crucifixion of Jesus. And John, why don't you read some of those passages to us?
1: Sure. First from Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? My enemies surround me. They have pierced my hands and feet. They divide my garments among themselves and they throw dice for my clothing. And then the Isaiah 53 passage, But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. But he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave.
0: And again, if you're reading those things and not paying attention to the location in scripture you would think you're reading from the gospels you'd think you're reading from matthew mark luke or john describing the events as we as we know them but we're not we're reading from the old testament prophecies from hundreds of years a thousand years before those things actually happened to jesus
1: yeah and ross can correct me on this if i'm wrong because i know he's more of a history buff even than i am but But crucifixion wasn't even really a standard method of execution at the time the psalms were written. So it's not like you could say, well, you know, a lot of people had their hands and feet pierced, a lot of people were crucified. That was really something that came along later on the scene with the Romans, they kind of perfected it. So it it just brings even more validity to the the prophetic nature of the book. Mm -hmm.
2: That's really, that's accurate, that's really true makes me realize, okay, we talked in the first point about the historical, the manuscript evidence, the archaeological evidence. Now, all of that helps us have confidence in the reliability and the accuracy of the Bible, but it doesn't necessarily prove that it's from God, right? But this second point, when we look at the text and the fulfilled prophecies, we're talking about something that only really God could do, to bring, out, to bring about the fulfillment of something over hundreds and hundreds of years with this exactitude. And so we're starting to get to the point where we're seeing, oh, there is divine power. It's not just an accurate book from the past, but it's a book with the fingerprints of God all throughout it.
0: Well, and again, it, if you're a person of no faith, this is incredible to you, like, uh, literally incredible. It's hard to believe. But a person of faith says... Well, this isn't hard to believe. Of course, the God who wrote the Bible is is going to be consistent with himself through all these different authors, 40 different authors, all these languages, 1500 years. Of it's one it's one author. So if and if if, and if God if God is powerful enough to raise to raise himself from the dead, then he's he's powerful and wise enough to protect God's word over the course of all this time not just to make sure that is that it is consistent it tells one consistent story but then to make sure to make sure that we today all these thousands of years later that we look back with all of our advanced archaeology and everything else and say this really is from God this god's word really is from God and all of this all of these prophecies everything that these things were spoken about Jesus. Remember this. I love what Jesus says in John 5, 39. He says, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. I love that. What he, This is what he's saying, is all this stuff points to me. And, you know, religious people had a hard time in Jesus's day. They had a hard time believing it. The irreligious people believed it more readily than the religious people in Jesus's day, because the the religious people had their preconceived notions about who the Messiah would be and how we, they probably cherry picked other passages from the Old Testament that, and they, they had this wrong idea about who Jesus would be, even just the death of Jesus, right? And Jesus is saying, no, look, if, you'd, if you were re- really reading scripture all along, you would, you would know that they point to me. And sure enough, scripture does point to Jesus. So we've looked at historical evidence. We've looked at textual evidence, and our final proof is what we call personal evidence. And guys, this might be the most, for me, this might be the one that resonates even more. Those other ones are great, but this one really speaks to me. The Bible is ultimately about Jesus, and the changed lives of his followers is the most compelling proof of its message. Let's, let's just think about three of Jesus' followers. Let's just kind of do a quick little vignette on each of these guys so that we can understand the impact that Jesus had personally on the lives of these people. Let's start with Peter. When Jesus was on trial before crucifixion, a servant girl noticed Peter. Peter is sitting out there by a fire, and this servant girl accuses Peter of being a follower of Jesus. Now remember, Peter was a guy that followed Jesus for three years, um, many people probably know the story of Peter. He'd walked on wa- Jesus called him to out of the boat and Peter walked on water. Peter was, a lot of people would say that Peter was maybe Jesus's favorite. I view Peter as the guy that was just, he just was the, he was like a puppy dog, right? This is Peter. But yet here he is now, Peter is sitting around the fire and the, 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 the servant girl says, wait, you were one of Jesus's followers. And Peter denies it not once, not twice, but three times. And he, Peter walks away with this incredible sense of guilt and shame. You could read about that in Luke 22. But that's not the end of his story. Okay? The resurrected Jesus, three days later, sits down to breakfast with Peter, and he reinstates him three different times. You can read about that in John 21. And Peter ends up going on to be the pillar of the Christian church. In fact, he, Peter ends up giving up his life for Jesus. I, I bring up all this all this information about Peter's life, because in my mind, logically, here's what I'm thinking. Peter, if, if I was, if I put myself in Peter's shoes, guys, tell me if this makes sense and I'm following Jesus for three years and then, and then Jesus is on trial and I, and I lose my courage and I deny Jesus, I'm going to probably just go back to being a fisherman unless something very significant happened after that trial Jesus is truly raised from the dead. If Jesus is raised from the dead and he appears to me, to me that's the only thing that's going to convince me to go back and do the thing that I was unwilling to do around the fire, which is to speak up for Jesus and even give up my life for Jesus. Why is Peter willing to do that later on in his
2: life and he wasn't willing to do it at the fire? Right, his his life is totally different, totally transformed. He goes on uh, to to boldly represent Jesus, he's thrown in prison, jail for that. He's a, ultimately he's um, executed for his faith in Christ, and he and and he never wavers. After he wavered that once, he never wavered his whole life. What's and what's the difference? Yeah, he well he met Jesus, and Jesus reinstated him, and, and so all the things Peter realized all the things that he had steeped himself in as a scripture believing Jewish person all the things that he had learned about the Jewish scripture that went before that all they've all now been fulfilled in this person and this and his encounter with this person completely changes his life
0: or how about the second guy Thomas everybody not everybody but a lot of people know doubting Thomas right that's this comes from Thomas the disciple of Jesus he had missed out on the meeting of the with the resurrected Jesus and the other disciples he was the only one who wasn't there at that time and he expressed his doubt to those other disciples when they said Thomas we met Jesus the resurrected Jesus he's alive and Thomas was like sure he was sure he is you know and i think a lot of if you're a skeptic out there listening this maybe you can really relate to thomas here's a guy who who said i won't believe it until i see it with my own eyes and then soon enough jesus reveals himself to thomas and Thomas places his faith in Jesus Christ. And I love that about, I love that, we're, that this gets included in the narrative in the story. And this, here's another guy, Thomas, who ends up dying for his faith, right?
1: Yeah, and Thomas, I, I can so relate to Thomas. He was kind of like, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I, I think Thomas felt like he'd been duped until he saw the resurrected Christ, you know, he'd spent this time with Jesus and Jesus clearly proclaimed to be God in the flesh, the Messiah. And then all of a sudden your Messiah is gone and he's hung on the cross. And uh, I love, I love that the authors include this story too. I think this goes back to, if you were making this up, (laughs) you wouldn't, be so honest about the failures of the key leaders of the early church. right. And, you know, you've used the word logical several times, Brian. There is just no logical reason a guy like Peter or a guy like Thomas would end up being martyred, would die for their faith unless they'd encountered the resurrected Jesus. Mm -hmm. There's just no reason to do it.
0: And speaking of reasonable and logical, there's one guy in the New Testament that s- strikes me as the math engineering guy. This is the most logical guy in 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 the in the story and it's Paul. Paul was this very educated, self-righteous pharisee. If you read if you read Paul's writings in the Old Testament, he's just very I love how he writes. He's just very logical. He just he really knows how to make an argument. He probably would have been a lawyer. In t- he would have been a great lawyer in today's age. And here's this guy who's a Pharisee. He's a self-righteous Pharisee, which means he's a religious leader in the, Jewish, in the Jewish church. And his life mission was to persecute the followers of Jesus. You can read about this in the earlier chapters of the book of Acts. And then something happens. Acts chapter 9, it says that he met, he met Jesus, and he ends up joining this small group of misfits. He ends up joining the very fishermen and tax collectors that he was persecuting, and he w- one day he feels above them, and they're beneath him, and he's persecuting them, and, and Jesus was beneath him. He thought Jesus was, was just a carpenter's son and, and not worth listening to. He was trying to expose this lie, quote-unquote lie, and then he meets Jesus, and he, it completely changes his life, right? So Paul's story to me is probably the most compelling story. There's no way that a guy would throw away his education, his prestige, everything he had going for him in his life, that he would throw it away and become a tent maker for the Gospel,
2: and ends up, even like the others, he ends up giving up his life for his faith. Yeah, for sure. And you know, we could take... These are are stories that are in Scripture. We can multiply this hundreds and thousands-fold, From the lives of people who've lived since then, you know, our own lives, we have our own stories to tell about how our lives are transformed by the Word of God. And I would like to just add just a footnote to that, because I've been reading a book about how culture has been transformed by the Word of God, Mm. and the whole idea, so it's a bigger picture of the same point, how the whole idea that humans should have rights, inalienable rights, the whole idea of human dignity, that's not present in cultures that have that were not shaped by the Bible, that's present in in a culture that's shaped by the Bible, and the only reason it has uh, spread around the world is because of the influence of that of that culture, biblically shaped culture, has had on other cultures. I'm I'm, I'm reading a book on this right now, and it's from the perspective of a guy who was. Uh, an Asian who was raised not in the Western culture, not in America or Europe, and so through Asian eyes, he's saying, wow, the Bible has completely transformed certain cultures and other cultures that haven't known the Bible, don't have human dignity, the rights of human individuals, the value and worth of an individual. He talks about how technology, cultures... That were shaped by the Bible were the ones that developed technology, and he connects the dots and some reasons why that is the case. Cultures shaped by the Bible are the ones that developed reason and rationality, and he, and he connects the dots to show a compelling argument on why that's the case. So it works how individuals are transformed by the Word of God, but whole cultures have been transformed historically and geographically by the principles that are found you know, in the Bible as well. That, to me, is a pretty powerful evidence as well. And we'll pick up on that a little bit in the next lesson as we talk about
0: how God cares about the whole person, and I think, again, some people are going to be surprised to hear that because of the caricature that sometimes God gets in our culture, and it, it's ironic that our culture is, is biting the hand that fed them, right, is what you're saying, Ross. So we've looked we've looked in this lesson at three evidence. Like we can go on forever on this, but we've looked at historical evidence, we've looked at textual evidence, and personal evidence. But I want to finish with this passage from Jesus. These words of Jesus, because here's the thing. And, and I, if you're listening to this and you're still not convinced, if you're listening to this and you're still a skeptic or you're an agnostic or, an, or you're an atheist, I just I want I want you to hear what Jesus has to say to you, because the truth is that no amount of evidence can overcome an unbelieving attitude. If you have just, if you've made up your mind at the end of the day, that you are not going to trust, you're just not willing to trust the Bible. You're not willing to turn to Jesus. You're not willing to become a person of faith for whatever reason. Maybe it's because you just don't want to give up your lifestyle. You don't want to give up your, 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 own, your own claim to your authority over your life, whatever it is. For whatever reason, if you're not willing to believe God's word, here's what Jesus has to say to this. John chapter 7, verses 16 and 17. He says, my message is not my own. It comes from God who sent me. This is what we're trying to prove here today anyone who wants to do the will of God will know whether my teaching is from God or is merely my own. I I, I think that's such a powerful statement. He's saying, if you want to do the will of God, if if you have a willingness to do the will of God, if you have a, a heart attitude that says, it's kind of like what we looked at last week about being wholehearted in your pursuit. If you're wholeheartedly pursuing God, you'll know if God's word is from God or not if you've already made up your mind that if you're stubborn if you're hard-hearted if you're rebellious then then your your pursuit of god is over before it even started because if you're not willing to humbly come to god's word and say god this is i'm going to come to you on your terms not on my terms then then you'll never you'll never discover the god of the bible that's what jesus is saying here in this passage so my encouragement to everyone out there, is to turn to God in His Word, trust His Word because He's revealed Himself in the Bible. We can trust that God's Word is reliable, and we can find life if we continue to pursue Him through His Word. That's what we're going to be doing over these next 11 weeks as we continue on in the pursuit. Again, if you want to talk about this with your family, with a small group, or one-on-one with a mentor. We encourage you to check out the resources at PursueGod.org forward slash go. Again, this is Lesson 2 in our 12-week series called The Pursuit. Next week, guys, we're going to talk in Lesson 3, we're going to talk about people and how people matter to God and how the whole person matters to God. So I hope everyone will join us next time. Hey listeners, this is Brian Dwyer reminding you to rate this show on your favorite podcast app. That really does help us when you do that. That way more people can discover this podcast and start listening. And also, don't forget to share the podcast with a friend.